Um, I'm going to pray and then we'll go in. I'm going to read the entirety of the text and we're not going to do all those verses today uh, in Matthew 5, 1 through 12, but we're going to read them all so you can see what it is that we're looking at and then we'll go into it. Let me pray. Um, Lord, today I, uh, I just feel a certain sense from your spirit that you have work that you want to do today and it's been kind of weighing on me all week God and I just know that there's work you desire to do today and my greatest fear is that I could stand in your way and so Lord I pray this morning that you would remove me away from the work that you want to do and that everything I say this morning would be from your spirit. I'm so humbled to be able to stand here and preach your word this morning. And so, Lord, I pray, God, that um, you would move in my heart and that you would move in all of our hearts too as we look into the greatest sermon ever spoken by the greatest person that's ever lived that you would amaze us with your love and your beauty in the gospel. Be with us now as we look into your word. Holy Spirit, please move. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Seeing the crowds, in verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down. His disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you to to get and understand fully what's going on here in the sermon of the mount we need to start very general and then kind of narrow into the specifics of the beatitudes Um, and so what i want to do is just kind of um, bring us back here a second and realize that this is the first of five teaching discourses in the book of matthew this is the first one Um, there's going to be more where he starts teaching um and remember, we've just finished um, in, in 4, verse 17. There's the turning point in verse 17 of chapter 4, where he tells us from that time. So this is, this is a, a turning point. There's going to be one more, in, I think it's in chapter 16, where we see from that time. And he says, from that time, Jesus began to preach. And his message was, repent 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we see in verse 23 how that uh, is explained. This repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says in 23 that Jesus went proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So we understand that this message, which is the gospel of the kingdom, which is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is going to be expounded now for three chapters. The gospel of the kingdom is the Sermon on the Mount. That's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, a lot of times is kind of looked at the, the Ten Commandments, the next one. And it's kind of just thought of as, this is just more law. This is just giving you more law, more explanation of how you're supposed to look. And that is not the idea of the Ten Commandments. The idea of the Ten Commandments is not more law. The idea of the Ten Commandments is gospel. The idea of the Ten Commandments is, now that you are a Christian, now that you are a believer... These are the things that the Christian life is supposed to look at. Um, your ESV study Bible, if you have it, says it forms a challenging but practical ethic that Jesus expects his followers to live by in this present age. More than likely, this sermon was not preached at one time. Um, it was preached over a series of a couple of days. And we can kind of get that from the end of chapter 7 where it says that the crowds were even larger. So they, they came back and, and they, he preached this over a few days. So there was a lot of stuff going into this. Um, and you'll see here where it says um, in 23 that he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And then we go down to three. Notice three. Um, there's a pattern with each verse. Blessed. And then there's for they. And you'll see three. that the, the comfort that's given is for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, um, Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven where Mark and Luke are going to use the phrase kingdom of God. They're synonymous. They're the same thing. The reason why? Matthew's writing to Jews. And Jews have a, a thing where they don't want to say God's name. And so synonyms are used for God. And, and heaven is it. So he's using here the kingdom of heaven as the thing. Now, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones takes the Sermon on the Mount and he really just breaks it up into two parts. And I, I think this is helpful as we go into it. So I want you to consider this. He takes the Sermon on the Mount and breaks it up into two points. He says, in general, we're going to look at the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. is just the first 16 verses. We're not going to do all that. But it's the Beatitudes and the salt and light. And what he says is, um, this is the character of the Christian life. This is what the character of the Christian life should look like in verses 1 through 11. And then he says in 13 through 16, and that's how it looks like in the world. You, you, this is who you're supposed to be, and this is how you interact in the world. And then the rest of the sermon, 517 all the way on, is just particulars. This is how we're supposed to look. This is our character. And then he talks about what that looks like in law and anger and divorce and, and on and on. So um, the first section is huge for us to get down um, to be able to understand. Now you'll notice in 3 it says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then it ends in 10. Um, the same promise. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's, there's eight beatitudes in here. Um, and they're in each verse. Uh, you'll see here in 10 and 11... 10 and 11, those are really one beatitude. Those are kind of the same thing. They're all about you being persecuted. So there's eight beatitudes in here. Um, and the first one says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then the tenth one, Blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The same promise. And, and fancy little words, this is called an inclusio. For you know rednecks, we just call it brackets or bookends. And we just say, all right, if that's the case, if he's going to begin it and end it with the kingdom of heaven, then everything that's going to be discussed inside of that is about the kingdom of heaven. 
So everything that we're going to see here in the Beatitudes is completely about the kingdom of heaven. And this is just picking up the idea from 4.17 and 4.23 about the kingdom of heaven. So the Beatitudes is what it means to repent and to belong to the kingdom of heaven. Living out this Sermon on the Mount can't be divorced away from a relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, This is the gospel, not law. So you, you, you approach this knowing that there's no way that I can do this. There's no way. I can't be meek or hunger and thirst for righteousness or merciful. I can't be these things. So because of the gospel has come into my life and I've been saved by Jesus, Jesus gives me the power and the spirit now to go and be meek, hunger, thirst for righteousness, etc. So the gospel is really key for us to understand that um, as we become Christians, therefore we're able to live this out. Um, it says, living on the Sermon on the Mount can never be divorced from a right relationship with God. This teaching will change us only when we submit to the sovereign and gracious reign of the one who preaches it. For the Sermon on the Mount enshrines its teaching, enshrines in its teaching the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ. Don't miss this part right here. This means that we must dispense of the myth that's all too common that we can have Christ as Savior to begin the Christian life, and then at some time later in our stages of life, start making a full surrender to Him. It all is at the same time. That's Sinclair Ferguson, by the way. Um, So here we're seeing as we come to this, that the Sermon on the Mount is telling us that this is the nature of the kingdom. The nature of the kingdom is supposed to drive us to despair, realizing that we are morally bankrupt, and that we can only turn to faith in Jesus. That's our only hope we have. And as we turn to faith in Christ, we find new life in Him. And as we find new life in Him, we are able to live out the way that Jesus lived His life in this world. So this this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is not one that's supposed to make you feel guilty or hopeless. Which would be the inclination of sometimes. When we see, "I I can't do that. How am I supposed to... How am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to not only not hate people, but in my heart not hate people? How am I not supposed to lust at people, but in my heart not feel any kind of inclination towards people that I've committed adultery even if I lust? How am I supposed to do that? It's impossible. And these things aren't, make you, aren't supposed to make you feel guilty or hopeless, but instead, if we get the Beatitudes, we're going to understand the rest of the sermon. It's supposed to lead us to hope. The gospel has declared us righteous. This message is not one of guilt, but is one of hope and challenge for us to live. Because as Christians, we can live these things out. Jesus Christ is the one that enables us to live out the Sermon on the Mount. Because He has given us His power. So as we go in here, this is what I want you to pray. This is what I want you to think. This is what I want you to be meditating on as we go into this. God, help me grow in obedience to whatever you say to me this morning. You're going to show me some things in this, in this text this morning. I pray that you help me grow in my obedience. Because the Sermon on the Mount is not about an ideal life and an ideal world. It's about the kingdom life in a fallen world. It's about living out the gospel of the kingdom here in this fallen world to these people that you have around you. 
So that's that's the Sermon on the Mount. Now we're gonna we're gonna shrink in a little bit. We're gonna narrow into the Beatitudes. Um, the word Beatitudes is Latin for uh, Beatus. The Latin word it just means um, I didn't say Beavis. I said Beatus, um, and it's blessed or happy. Um, happy is pretty close to what would be a literal translation, but because in America um, and really in contemporary English, happy means a little bit different than what it does there. Um, it's a little bit more. So blessed is a good translation so that we can kind of hold on to. We're not just talking about some kind of temporal um, happiness that is swayed by my emotions of things that are going on right now. Um, so it's important that we see that all Christians here are to realize that when we're talking about blessed, that we have these things in our life, that we are, another word for this is favored or approved of by God. Approved of or favored or happy is this person that is blessed or approved or favored by God. There's, there's a lot in there when we talk about this word blessed um, that he's telling us. And all Christians in these eight, eight Beatitudes, all Christians are supposed to be all eight of these things. Okay, sometimes we read this and we think, oh yeah, well I guess I'm mournful sometimes and I'm meek and uh, maybe I'm pure in heart. I'm not really a peacemaker though. Um, I don't find myself hungry and thirsting for righteousness very much and certainly not poor. In, like, we, we, we don't find the ones that are us and say, oh I've got a few of those and like the spiritual gifts. So I've got these spiritual gifts but not those. Um, the Beatitudes are not a list of things that maybe we have and maybe we don't. Um, the idea of these are that Christians aren't supposed to just have some of these qualities and be satisfied. They're to have all of these things. Um, they come as a whole, the Beatitudes, not as a series of options, but they come as a whole. These short statements here summarize, actually, the essence of the entire Sermon on the Mount. So if we get the Beatitudes, we get the whole Sermon on the Mount. If you understand the Beatitudes, you understand the entire Sermon on the Mount. As a matter of fact, I'd say this. If you understand the Beatitudes, you understand and get the entire Christian life. So we're not like at some kind of little verse here. I mean, we just need to stop and, and kind of consider here that we have now by God's grace moved into chapter 5, the first teaching of our Lord, and we are going to get to hear the sermon of Jesus. And he's telling us, these first things are everything. If you get this, you get everything. The enormous weight of understanding that Jesus is preaching to me. Not anybody else. It's not Paul. It's not a, it's not a story of Paul's sermon or Peter's sermon from Acts. This is, this is a story. This is a Matthew talking to us where Jesus preached a sermon. And everything that's in these first 11, verse 12 verses is everything we need to know for the entire Christian life. The weight is absolutely amazing. Now, um, one other thing I want to say. The, the Sermon on the Mount is kind of broken up. I'm sorry, the Beatitudes is kind of broken up into a few sections. And they progress. Um, they go one to the next. There's a progression here. And so this is why I say you need to look at these things and, and realize that these aren't optional. They come as a whole. You're to have all these things. Now, here's the thing. We automatically are going to switch over into 
go do it mode. I don't want you to think that way today, okay? I don't, I don't want you to think, well, if I gotta have all of them, well then I gotta start pursuing these things. I'm gonna take it at a different angle, and this is hopefully gonna be revolutionary for you. It was absolutely blowing my mind this week as I started considering this. If you're in Christ, if you are in Christ, these eight things are not things to pursue. These eight things are things that are already true of you. That's revolutionary. Because, I mean, if you're like me, you look at them, you're like, it's not true. But they are. So we're going to approach these eight things, not from the perspective where I'm going to take my Bible and slap you across the head and say, be like this. I'm going to say, Christian, you are this. This is who you are. And hopefully that will transform us all. All right. So we're going to get to it in a second. I want to set us up here in the first couple of verses. Matthew sets us up in verse 1 and 2 before we get in. So I just want to set us up. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Um, I've said before, Matthew's kind of trying to, in some ways, parallel the book of Exodus in some ways. There's some similarities here. So Jesus is going up on the mountain to give us the Sermon on the Mount, which is the parallel to the Ten Commandments. As Moses went up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, Jesus is going up on the mountain to teach the essence of what the Ten Commandments really say, the Gospel. Um, there's, there's more similarities, but we can just see from that that, G, that this is a uh, going up on the crowds, seeing the crowds um, in, ver, in verses one. Two, I'm sorry, verse one, the first three words. This is just highlighting again the compassion of Jesus to not say, "Oh, there's great crowds following me. I've been healing all day." Remember, we just saw in 23 through 25 that he's been healing and preaching the gospel, healing people all, all the time, and they're following him all over, seeing the crowds. He said, "I'm going to stop healing, and now I'm going to give you what you really need, not just temporal physical healing, but." I'm going to teach you the gospel, what you need for all eternity. So compassion of Jesus here, seeing the crowds. And then interesting, um, here it says he sat down and then his disciples came to him. He's teaching his disciples. Remember, this is early in his ministry. He's not like yelling at the Pharisees yet. He's taking his disciples in and teaching them what it means to be a disciple of Christ. So he's, he's talking to them and it says, and he opened his mouth. Um, this is just a Semitic um, idiom or a... Hebrew way of saying something. They're not just saying, and he started talking. This is, and he opened his mouth. Um, trying, Matthew's trying to highlight to those who are Jewish, this is authority taking place. This man, Jesus, has authority to open his mouth and start teaching. He's, he's highlighting the authority of Christ to these um, Hebrew readers. And he teaches them. And one of the things that we're going to be constantly seeing is that as the people heard Jesus teach, they would always say things like, this man teaches like no one else. Like he teaches with authority. It's not like the other guys who take out Isaiah and read and maybe make some comments. He takes out the word and he reads it and he preaches with authority declaring that these things are about me. The authority of Jesus astounds people. We're, we're kind of used to it now because we're absolutely so used to the sovereignty of God. But if we place ourselves back in there and watch a man claiming deity, forgiving sins, healing people, forgiving a lady who had been stripped of all of her clothing and thrown down in front of him and telling everybody, if you haven't sinned, then go ahead and, and th throw the first stone. I mean, there's just countless amounts of stories where we see Jesus declaring his absolute authority here. And he's opening his mouth and teaching them. 
And then we come to the word blessed, makarios. And I've said this is more than just an un, a, uh, a temporal feeling. This is favor by God. This is unshakable. This is more than just a temporary or circumstantial feeling of happiness. This isn't your Thursday night youth group where you're just all worked up on Thursday night camp and you're like, oh, I'm going to never sin again because I'm so excited. And everybody's like, he's had a great week. He is never going to sin again. It's, I mean, this is a serious, like, deep, deep understanding that you are grounded in an understanding that Jesus is your only hope. It doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter to me what happens. I am going to be forever blessed and happy and joyful. It's not, um, it's not depending on my circumstances. It's rooted in the gospel that is eternal. So, what does it mean then when we think here, um, when Jesus says, people, Jesus says to people, uh, I want you to come and take up your cross and follow me. And that's supposed to be happy. You know, we hear verses like that and he calls us towards that kind of life. Why is it that we're calling ourselves happy or blessed if we're supposed to die to ourselves? Um, Calvin was commenting on this. He says, the disciples of Christ must learn the philosophy of placing their happiness beyond the world and above the affections of the flesh. So this happiness isn't just rooted in worldly pleasures or worldly things. It's beyond the affections of the flesh and goes to Christ. So we're not talking about like a euphoric high like a drug. Um, We are instead talking about a deep gospel transformation that always perseveres to the end here. Blessed are these people. Now, before we get into what's going to just be the first two today, that's all we're going to have time for, I want to show you one other thing, which is kind of a run-through of all of them very quickly. And I want you to see the progression from the Beatitude to the next. And as we see this progression, I want you to notice that the progression of the Beatitudes is the Gospel itself. It is the Gospel itself. And Lord willing, we can, I can make it through this, because this is just astounding. We see that blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And when they recognize that they are poor in spirit, they're going to desire the kingdom of heaven. And because they're poor in spirit, they're going to mourn. And they're broken because of their sin. But not do they just stay there, but they become comforted by God. That's the next one. And as they're comforted by God, they become meek. They desire not their own plans, but the desires of God. They want God's plans to be their plans, not their plans. They want to be meek. This is contrast to thinking that they rule the world and realizing that God rules the world, that God is the only one who is strong. And they inherit the earth. And as they inherit the earth, they hunger and thirst for righteousness. New affections begin to come into their heart as they realize how sinful they are and how God has forgiven them. And now they start saying, I want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I don't want to be dirty and sinful anymore. I don't want to be declared a sinner anymore. I want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And you seek to be forgiven. And when you are seeking forgiveness from God, He declares you righteous. He declares you justified completely. And He's the only one that now can satisfy you. You don't find temporal satisfactions in sin or whatever, but it's only going to come from knowing that you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That's how you're going to be satisfied. And now, now that you have been shown mercy, you become merciful to other people because of your sin has been forgiven. And when you start realizing this, you become pure in heart. You become 
Become the kind of person that wants to seek after holiness. You don't, you don't find yourself being satisfied with sin. When temptation comes, you fight it with everything you have. You put to death the deeds of the body because you want holiness in your life. You want to be pure in heart. You bank and you live on the promise that one day you're going to see God and He's holy, so you want to be pure in heart. And as that happens, as you bank on the fact that you will see God, you become a peacemaker. A peacemaker is someone who goes and finds other people who don't have peace with God and reconciles them to God. You want to become a peacemaker, not just in the the temporal sense, but in the most ultimate sense. Everyone is not at peace with God if they're outside of Christ, and you are becoming a peacemaker, finding those who don't know and bringing them to Christ. You become a peacemaker. The greatest peace that people can know and experience is peace with God. And you exhort others to believe in Christ and have peace with Him because of the blood that He shed on the cross for Him. And it gives you great joy to know that you're a son of God because you're a peacemaker. And as you live as a follower of Christ and you are trying to bring others to Christ, pursuing holiness and trying to be a peacemaker, bringing other people to Christ, it becomes evident to you that you're no better than your master and you will receive persecution just like he did. But in the midst of persecution... The kingdom of heaven is promised to you. He begins and ends with the kingdom of heaven. It's promised to be yours, and so you put your hope in that, and you rejoice, and you're glad, as it says, in the midst of this persecution, because Christ is your all. The Beatitudes is the gospel in the rest of the Christian life. It's absolutely amazing. And what we want to do now over the next couple weeks, few weeks, is not fly through this, but get this. We want to understand this deeply. Christ took His time to teach us this, and we want to take our time to understand this. We're going to go through the first couple today and then respond in worship. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I've titled this, The Eight Characteristics the Gospel Brings. Um, These are the things not that we're to do, rather they describe by God's grace who we are. Not what we are to do, but who we are. That's why I said these are eight characteristics the Gospel brings. When the Gospel comes into your life, these eight characteristics are true of you and I. All of them. You're approved of now by God. So these things are all now true. You are completely justified because of Christ. So these things are true of you. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Poor in spirit is someone who recognizes that they're in need of God's rescue. They realize that they are in absolute need of the rescue of God. Why do they realize this? They realize that they were dead spiritually and they need to be made alive. This is a personal acknowledgement that they are absolutely spiritually bankrupt. This is the deepest form of repentance. Remember 417? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the, the um, absolute acknowledgement 
that they are completely spiritually bankrupt. They are utterly helpless. They expect nothing from them from themselves, and they expect everything from God. Being poor in spirit, spirit becomes most acutely aware when we have been granted by God to recognize His righteousness and holiness in comparison to ourselves. And when we see and recognize His holiness and His righteousness in comparison to ourselves, we become spiritually bankrupt. We realize that we have nothing good in us. Now, if that's true, and that only makes sense that that would be true in light of God's holiness, then the response or the blessing that comes from that only makes sense. Because all they would want is the kingdom of heaven. That's why theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They literally don't want nothing else because they understand. I'm completely spiritually bankrupt. I have nothing in me. Why would I want anything that I have to offer? He's holy and righteous. The only thing I want is the kingdom of God. The only thing I want is the kingdom of heaven. I want want you to see, or just actually hear, it's not going to be on the screen, just listen to this, an example of someone in the book of Luke who gets this, someone who, who sees this. There's, there's a, uh, a tax collector and a Pharisee who go up to the temple to pray. And it says the Pharisee and the tax collector were there. And the Pharisee was standing by himself and he prayed like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like the other man. I, I'm not the extortioners, the unjust or the adulterers or even like this tax collector. They don't, he didn't realize just how spiritually bankrupt he was. As a matter of fact, he thought he was pretty all right. Spiritually, he thought he was awesome. He was doing everything he could to be holy in his own power and was pretty, in his mind, aware that he was holy, even though he wasn't. He said, I fast twice a week. I give all my tithes. And the tax collector stood far off and he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. But beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Luke comments right after that. Listen to this comment. Because the person that's poor in spirit needs to understand that we all have to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Not look what I've accomplished. I tell you, this man went down from his house justified, talking about the tax collector, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Poor in spirit is the deepest form of repentance. It's a confession that he is sinful and rebellious and utterly without any kind of adequate sense of virtue and he commends himself totally to God. This is not self-hatred or showy humility. Okay? It's not self-hatred or showy humility. This is a deep sense and recognition before God just how morally unworthy we are in light of his holiness. So why does the kingdom of heaven belong to this person? This is, <laughs> this is just beautiful. This person is not coming to God saying, look at my righteousness, look at all my accomplishments. He or she comes to God and says, I have nothing. I, I have nothing. All, all I have is Jesus. That's all I have. I come empty, God, to be filled by you. I am completely empty of anything. As an old hymn said, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Theirs is the, is the kingdom of heaven because it is only heaven that they want. It's only heaven that can reveal that to them, that they have nothing. 
And only God that can give them this desire and only God that can save them. That's beautiful. Now, again, don't miss this because I could easily just say, so be poor in spirit. Come on. Recognize your sinfulness in the light of God's holiness. But Christian, you have trusted the gospel. You are poor in spirit. You do love Christ. You do recognize that you have nothing besides Him. You do only desire the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the first point I want you to see out of the eight characteristics the gospel brings is this. If you have believed in the gospel... You are poor in spirit. Not should be. You are poor in spirit. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is yours. An absolute awareness of our complete dependence on Him yields the kingdom of heaven. I'm not sure that even if we tried our hardest sometimes, I think it's so difficult to looking to this and really get it. I mean, the Beatitudes are just astounding. Now, the next Beatitude, as I've said, there's a progression here. This next Beatitude is coupled with that first one. And I want you to see what I mean. Um, Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The second beatitude of mourning is the emotional counterpart of the one who's poor in spirit. The first beatitude is the recognition of who you are in light of God's holiness. But then there's something that couples with that. The emotional response. The appropriate emotional response of someone who realizes this. So this is the emotional counterpart of the one who is poor in spirit. Now, sounds a little crazy. (laughs) Blessed are those who mourn. Happy are those who cry. What? How does that work? This is not a a man-centered mourning. This is a God-centered mourning. This is not... um, Mourning because of circumstances necessarily. This is mourning because of realizing who you are in light of God's holiness only brings a deep sense of emotion with that. And we weep. We mourn. It breaks our heart to know that we have sinned against a God who would send His only Son for us. Now, I want to be really explanatory here because it, 
we look at this and we say, um, God, uh, Fudd, I don't, I don't re- think I've really ever experienced like a, uh, just this big, huge weep time. You know, like, what are you talking about? It's not how it worked for me. Let me explain to you what I mean here. Um, what does this look like? Let, let me read a text to you. This is in 2 Corinthians 7. This is in 2 Corinthians 7. Paul was writing to the Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians 7 and kind of calling them out on some things that were going on in, in their place. And they started becoming um, grieved over their sin. And uh, let me pick it up in 8. Let me pick it up in 8. This is 2 Corinthians 7, 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. So, poor in spirit, coupled with grief, leads us into repentance. That's the, that's the way it works. You are grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. And here's verse 10. It should be on the screen. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So this idea of mourning is the same thing as 2 Corinthians 7.10. Godly grief and mourning leads to salvation, or godly grief leads to salvation. So what we're seeing here is, as we realize we're poor in spirit and we repent, we're coupling that with the real emotions of grief, which leads to salvation as we repent. So should I really weep then? I mean, should I weep? Let me just read a... uh, a little excerpt from a guy named Sinclair Ferguson. And I want you to listen to what he writes about Christians and their emotional responses to things. And I think that we'll find this helpful. And I'm not saying you should weep. I'm just saying listen to what he says here about Christians' appropriate responses. A rounded spiritual experience involves stretching our emotional response to the gospel, not narrowing it. The child of the kingdom knows higher joys than other people, no question, as well as deeper sorrows. More sensitive mourning, but also more profound comfort now that he is the Lord's. His emotional sensitivity becomes greater, not less. The Bible even records a time where Christ wept where he looked over the sin and the hard-heartedness of Jerusalem because of their sin, and he wept for them. Now, if we just stopped here and didn't read the second half of four, maybe a little bit of, oh, what's he trying to do here? But this mourning, this weeping is not supposed to just stop there because the second half of four is an enormously profound, unbelievable promise. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. May I make the case to you that no one, no one compares with God in giving comfort. 
No one will comfort you the way God can. So yes, your emotions might be lifted into deeper sorrow because of your sin. But no one will comfort you and bring you greater joy and lift you out of that higher than God Himself. So it doesn't stop here. That's why this isn't hopeless, but hopeful. It's not driving you into guilt, but driving you into deep joy in the gospel. You recognize sin, but then you see Christ's work on the cross for us. And our response is just deep gratitude. Don't miss the hope because we have comfort. What do we have comfort from? We have deliverance from the penalty of sin. Eternal death. Eternal death has been removed. That's comfortable. That's very, very, very comforting. I mean, can you remember maybe back? Can you just recall with me the first time it all kind of hit you? Maybe you were a teenager. Maybe you were 20. But there's a time, and I know we've all had it, whether it was expressed with deep, actual tears, or just there was something that happened in your heart you just couldn't even explain because words are finite. And the infinite was moving in your heart. And because the infinite was moving in your heart, words are finite and can't explain it. But there was a a movement in your heart where you said, my sin is too great. But oh, the love of Christ that has forgiven me for this. And maybe it, it expressed itself in tears. But there was a deep sense of grief that led you to repentance that led to your salvation. Do you remember the severity of it before God? And then the deep sense of comfort that God brought to you. Because not only do you get eternal death taken away, but you also get ushered into the kingdom of heaven and experience forever with Him right relationship with your Creator. And because of the banality of the world, the the day in, day out of television and things, we become numb to this beautiful reality that we have been forgiven by God because of day in, day out circumstances. We kind of lose an awe and wonder and sense of this fact that we've been forgiven by God. So maybe God's calling you back to, to that. Maybe He's Maybe He's calling you away from the things that steal your affections for Christ. The things that, that rob you from your deep sense of mourning. And rob you from the deep comfort of Christ. There's so many things that we have in our lives that rob us from that. Triviality on television or the busyness of life the checklists to get things done throughout the day. The idea that we have to work for God rather than just enjoy Him. But there's an even greater comfort in our future. 
than the comfort you've even received now. There's an even greater comfort awaiting everyone that is in Christ. At the end of the age, when all of our sin is removed, even the one that's working itself out in you right now, here we see Him dimly, but one day we'll see Him face to face. All the effects of pride and hate and lust and sickness and death, all the effects of a Genesis 3 world will be removed and we will be in heaven eternally, eternally experiencing the most perfect comfort of God. We are experiencing in a sense now, but one day, (laughs) it will be amazing. So whatever the things that are robbing you of your deep affections for Christ right now. I mean, why let that happen? There's no girlfriend or boyfriend that's more important than Jesus. There's no level of popularity at your school that's more important than Jesus. There's no job or amount of money that's more important than Jesus. Don't miss this. This is who you are. The second thing is if you have believed the gospel, you are mournful over sin. Therefore, you will be comforted. Christian, this is who you are. I'm not saying do these things. I'm saying this is who you are. So let's live in that. This is our time of response. And as I said, it's going to be extended. So perhaps for a little while you want to sit and pray. Perhaps for a little while you want to just meditate on some scripture. You want to stay in the first song. You want to pray the second, whatever. However the Holy Spirit's leading. You want to talk to me, I'll be glad to pray with you. But whatever the Lord's leading right now, I just want you to be obedient to that. And then we'll come up for our our time after that closing. But be obedient to how the Lord is leading you right now through this time of worship. Engage into this. We don't have extended worship times too often. So let's, let's get out of this everything we can as far as fully engaging our hearts into Christ through the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for tonight or t- this morning. Thank you for this time where we can look into the greatest sermon ever preached and even if it is just the first two verses of many, many verses, because you spoke these words, not just here, but your whole word, there's so much into it. And I pray, God, that as we, as we engage now, that we wouldn't allow ourselves to be distracted by anything that's going on in life, but we would fully submit ourselves to your spirit and your leading as we worship. And if we need to pray, we would pray. If we need someone to pray with, we would go to them. If we need to, to read, we would read we need to stand and lift our hands, we would stand and lift our hands with the way that we are wired, the way that you have created us to respond to the glory and majesty of Christ, we would do that without reservation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.